Benson was a family man. The truck driver from Tacoma was a father of five. And every once in a while, he liked to get away. And he liked to go hunting. In October of 2000, John was braving the frigid and unpredictable weather just outside Mount Rainier National Park. It was prime hunting season for deer and elk. John had been hunting his whole life, and he knew how to do it right. That's especially important in an area that can get down below freezing at night with gusting winds and sometimes even an early autumn snowfall. Although he wasn't exactly roughing it. His large walled tent was outfitted with a cot, a pellet stove, and even a kitchenette. John was just looking for some alone time. He'd driven several miles along the base of the mountain, along winding dirt and gravel roads through dense forest until he found a little clearing, the perfect spot for his cozy home away from home. Imagine his surprise when early one evening, a stranger came knocking on his canvas door. A stranger who would offer John a little liquor in conversation. A stranger who would be the last person to see John alive. And that's the thing is when there's no witnesses and one person's dead, it's a tough job to try to figure out what exactly happened. The killer was clear, but could it have been self-defense? And if it was, why did the killer spend the night sleeping just a few feet from John's lifeless body? That's not reasonable. That's not something a reasonable person does. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime. Yeah, so visiting Mount Rainier in Washington is sort of like going to the Empire State Building. You know, you just have to, it's a must do if you live here, but John camping out there in October, it really shows his confidence level because yeah. it can be pretty, pretty crazy out there. Um, and the thing is, too, that people probably don't know about it, because I didn't really know about it until, you know, Mount St. Helens just, we celebrated the 40th year of its exploding all over the place. But Mount Rainier is still considered an active volcano. I don't right. know if you knew that. Yeah. So there's geohazards. They're one of the things you have to look out for wildlife, not getting turned around. Um, but it clearly sounds like John was well prepared for most dangers and was like, I'm, I'm ready for this. I mean, yeah. with, the, with the whole setup there, it sounds like he was a very a professional camper. Yeah, absolutely. And as much as I love camping, I've never been camping alone before. And after learning about this case, I, I don't think that that's something that I will ever want to do. So this was in October of 2000, hunting season in Washington state but also really unpredictable that time of year. You never know when you're gonna get sunshine, mild temperatures, or an early winter storm that drenches the Seattle area and covers Mount Rainier in several feet of snow. You kind of have to be prepared for anything. And from the sounds of it, John Benson was. His camp was, it had a pellet stove in it and enough pellets for days, a little kitchenette, cots with mattresses, you know, all the comforts of home in this big wall tent, which would have taken hours to set up. That's Officer Stacy Brown. At the time of this case, she was the chief civil deputy in Lewis County. That's basically like the chief detective. And she says on Sunday, October 22nd, she got the call from a Forest Service ranger who'd been contacted by a guy that he just happened to come across as he was out making his rounds. Kenneth Slurt had driven down the road in his Volkswagen Bug from his campsite that morning, the morning after the murder, 
to try to flag somebody down, I guess. Um, that's what he said he was doing. But he came into contact with this Forest Service ranger and then Slurt tells him that he had killed a man the night before in his campsite. I can't imagine the surprise of that forest ranger to find somebody out there in the kind of the middle of nowhere. Well, remember, Kim, I'm sure as you re, as re, you recall that forest rangers come across a lot of things. Remember, in our very first right. scene of the crime How episode. How could I forget that? I, I know. <laughs> the curse of the fairy cabin. Um, that took place in the Snoqualmie National Forest. And we talked to that ranger, C.J. Jones, who said he did run across a lot of things, inclement weather, wild animals. But he Humans, I just remember that cut of you playing. Humans were the thing he was most afraid of. And I can imagine my heart would start thumping running across a guy alone in the National Forest saying that he just killed a guy. Yeah, so this was a popular area with hunters, but Brown says that it doesn't seem like that's what Kenneth Slurt had in mind. Where Kenneth Slurt was camping was this flat area on top of a ridge and very wooded but if you drove down the road his campsite was right off of the road and when we got there we saw a blue tarp that was made into like a a, a tent you know by just making folding it in half and then staking it down so kind of like a lean-to more wasn't a true tent and then if you continued down the road that led you down into the valley below which is where the victim's very elaborate wall tent was set up so I don't know if he was really hunting. I think he was a kind of loner and he was just coming up there to get away from everybody. That was kind of his thing. He had a Volkswagen bug, you know, food for a couple of days. And I think he was just getting away. So imagine a VW bug. If he had to haul something out like a deer or an elk, there's no way. I can't even <laughs> I can't even picture that in my mind's eye. It seems totally diametrically opposed to like the elk would be as big as <laughs> yeah, the VW bug. Yeah, it would be like bug. tied onto the trunk or something. <laughs> well, the other thing that really jumped out to the deputy immediately was Slurt himself. When we finally got there, I remember Mr. Slurt was standing talking to one of the deputies. And my first impression was, is he had a lot of blood on him. He had blood all over his pants uh, or he had like gray sweatpants on, but he didn't have any injuries. Um, and I remember there was uh, some guns and alcohol on a tailgate of the Forest Service Rangers truck. And once they made their way back to the scene of the crime, there was a whole lot more. It got everyone wondering about Slurt's claim of self-defense. He was a very odd man. Very odd. He, he was a loner. And I'm not saying that's odd in of itself. A lot of people are introverted. But he he was just a very odd person, um, very odd mannerisms. And of course, his his story of what happened was not matching up with the evidence. So, you know, I was immediately suspicious. So what was Slurt's story? How did he say that Benson had died? Well, Slurt's story of that night would change several times over the next few days. But basically what he said was that Benson had driven his truck up to Slurt's campsite, that little tarp setup. He asked Slurt to hop in and offered to share a bottle of whiskey. He says that they sat in the truck and that they discussed uh, a lot of things, which ended up talking about politics and that they shared a bottle of, of hard alcohol. And Mr. Benson, the victim, had started talking about New World Order and anti-government militia, which Slurt said upset him. And um, they got into a verbal altercation, but he would get out of the truck, but then they would get back in the truck and continue on with this discussion. He said this happened several times. And that eventually 
it got so heated that Slurt got out of the car or out of the truck to leave the situation. And he claims that Benson got out of his truck and started mauling him. Mr. Benson was a very big man. It was dark at this point. Slurt says that Benson continued attacking him as he stumbled back to his tent to look for a flashlight or a lantern or something to see with. He also grabbed his 45 pistol and shot Benson, knocking him backwards. When Slurt tried to step over Benson to leave the tent, he says that Benson grabbed his ankle. So he fired again a second shot this time fatal. But it's what he did next that stuck in the mind of Deputy Brown for nearly 20 years. He covers him with a tarp and then goes to bed and sleeps with the dead man a couple feet away from his where he's sleeping. Most people would not be okay with that. Well, yeah, but does that immediately make him a suspect? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that who else? I mean, we're not saying there's a deranged loner, you know, going around. We know that he killed him. And what's unfortunate in these situations is, you know, the victim is not getting his say. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not getting to we, we have no idea what happened. But judging, you know, so you have to look at these details. You know, why would he put a tarp over him and then sleep right next to him? Yeah, he claimed apparently that he, because they had been drinking, mm -hmm. that he just was like stumbling around and a little bit out of it. And so he basically passed out in this tarp tent. Well, see, that's what I, I thought you were going to say as we were as this was rolling down and yeah. the hard alcohol that he was just so drunk that he passed out right where he was. But wouldn't just killing a person spike the adrenaline in your body? I mean, I'm just posing, yeah. you know, just kind of like, oh, my gosh, you know, could you then? I guess you could. But just laying right next to the body, it just seems like how would that you would sleep? you, how would you, uh, yeah, that <laughs> might like take that away. And then there was the alcohol. We all know that we do stupid stuff when we drink too much. But according to theconversation.com, which is a website, obviously, you know, alcohol really is no excuse for bad behavior. And that research reveals you're still the same person after a drink with your existing morality left intact. I think I read this same article not that long ago. It basically just says that you're more of who you are yeah. when you're drunk. Like you're more likely to let your walls come down and just be your true self. It's not that like when they say, oh, he's an angry drunk or he's a sad drunk or whatever. No, he's just an angry person who's drunk. Right. So it says, while alcohol might affect how we interpret and understand the emotions of other people, we can't blame our immoral behaviors on alcohol. Drunken you has the same moral compass. And so you are responsible for your moral and immoral actions, whether you've had a few drinks or not. Mm. So, of course, the investigators immediately thought there was something strange with this story, right? Like who sleeps next right. to the body of somebody, especially if it's self-defense and, you know, you're panicking and you would think that you would immediately want to go find somebody for help, not remain out in the wilderness with this dead body. Not only was it odd behavior, but Brown says the scene of the crime, the evidence itself, didn't support what Slurt was saying happened. What we saw was Mr. Benson, he was lying deceased with his feet, you know, a couple feet away from the entrance to the tent. And there was blood uphill from where he was laying because he was kind of laying on an incline, um, which is odd. That doesn't happen. That's not how gravity works. Um, the back of his uh, pants 
or pulled down on the back as if he had been drugged and placed in that position. And his uh, uh, suspender was askew, like it had been reclipped um, off to the side. And he had a uh, contact wound to his chest, um, which obviously does not play into what he said happened. And she says the whole story about that political argument in the truck just didn't fit with Benson's personality. And talking to Benson's family, they seem very straightforward. They were saying that's not something, you know, our dad would have done. You know, he wasn't into, um, you know, anti-government stuff. But here's the other thing as a detective that I know is not everybody knows everything that happens behind closed doors. So somebody can say, you know, John Benson was this, but, you know, does anybody ever really know somebody? You don't. So they were trying to keep an open mind, as investigators do, but the story that Slurt told of first shooting Benson from several feet away, then taking that second shot as he was stepping over him, also didn't match up with the physical evidence that they found at the scene. His story changed a little bit about what exactly happened there, but that ultimately he shot him and that he, quote unquote, blew back out of the tent, which we know isn't what happens. It's not like Hollywood. People don't blow or, you know, stumble backwards or get blown backwards by a gunshot. They usually crumple where they where they're hit. I love that quote unquote blew back. It's like, obviously, we know that he's maybe seen a couple of crime shows in his life. Yeah, yeah and- a few Hollywood blockbusters. <laughs> Yeah, Die Hard or something. And he's like trying to come up with something. Of course, you know, this is all speculation, but it doesn't, like she said, it doesn't fit. Yeah. So there were also those powder burns on the body that indicated both of the shots were fired at pretty close range. Again, more doubt to Slurt's story because he claims the first shot was from several feet away. But that doesn't match up with the powder burns on the body. So many nagging questions in this case. How did Slurt and Benson even meet each other? We we don't know. Their camps were not exactly within easy walking distance. And if this wasn't self-defense, as Slurt had claimed, why would he kill a complete stranger? We talked about a lot of theories like you always do on a case. And we had thought, you know, because he at one point had said that Mr. Benson had come on to him. And we'll never know what happened because we weren't there, but there is more to the story. I just don't know what it is. So another twist in this case. Could it have been some kind of clandestine rendezvous in the forest or maybe just a chance meeting in the woods that Benson hoped would turn romantic, but Slurt didn't? So another thing that that didn't match up between Slurt's story and what they found at the scene of the crime is that in the passenger seat of Benson's truck, There was a bag of Doritos and sunglasses and some other items that made it look like no one had been sitting there. You know, when you're in your car by yourself and you toss things into the passenger seat, Mm -hmm. you have to move those items if somebody's going to get in. But it looked like those items had not been moved. And so the whole story that Slurt told of sitting in the truck, drinking, having this argument came into question because the investigator said it didn't look like anybody else was in Benson's truck. Well, if they said that they were having the conversation in the truck, how did they get, what did he say? How did they get to the tent or the lean-to? So when they started having that argument, Slurt left the truck because he was upset. And I, for some reason, he kept kind of going back and forth, like he would come back to the truck and try to talk some more, and then he'd get upset and he'd leave again. So it was a little bit of a back and forth until the final confrontation when Slurt claims that the last time he got out to go to the tent, Benson followed him and attacked him. So it was Benson's truck. Yes. So how did they get from 
Benson's campsite into his truck. That's what I don't get. It, it, it's not clear. I mean, we don't really know. Like, we know that their campsites well, he, were not near each other. We know that Benson drove his truck up to Slurt's campsite. But we don't know how they met initially, what what made Benson drive his truck up there. Like, we we just don't know. And, and obviously, Slurt's idea that they were sitting next to each other in the cab of the truck doesn't hold water when you look at the the chip bag and the sunglasses right. because those would have been moved for him to sit there. And the other thing that, that makes me think the idea of Benson coming on to Slurt possibly maybe could have happened. If you remember, the deputy said that Benson's suspenders looked like they had been unsnapped and then re-snapped off center when he was found, which I think is kind of odd. I think that the whole thing sounds odd. I think that you just we just don't know. And we don't know what either of their characters are based on until we, you know, we can hear the interviews that he gave. And so we're getting Slurt's side of the story. But we don't know. Right. But the family, you know, sh- like she said, what the deputy said, you know, we don't know what, what's in people's hearts. Right. and But what we do know is that Slurt murdered yeah. Benson. We do know there is absolutely no doubt that Slurt killed Benson. The only question that really remained was, how did it happen and why did it happen? Was it self-defense or was it murder? And basically, based on all the evidence, it doesn't point to self-defense. Right. Because even if he were in the the lean-to and he got him point blank in the chest and he leans up you know, to grab his arm or his leg, as he said, I mean, he could have just like ran away. Right. Exactly. You know, he didn't have to do that fatal shot. Yeah. If the guy was already injured and unable to chase you... What's the point in shooting him again? Yeah, there is no point. Whatever led up to the shooting, Brown says that they were pretty sure they weren't going to get the whole story from their only suspect. It was one of the strangest cases because everything that he that uh, Slurt was telling us did not match up with what we were seeing at the scene evidence wise. And then a lot of circumstantial evidence, too. Right. Like who shoots somebody and then goes to sleep with their body three feet away? that's not reasonable. That's not something a reasonable person does. Does that mean, you know, in of itself that that means he killed them? No. But in combination with everything else that we were seeing, we knew something was off and that he was not being truthful about what happened. So do you have any theories on why you think these two were hanging out or what you think led up to the murder? You know, I think that that it probably started off with the best intention with like, hey, hey, you know, they somehow saw each other. And was like, hey, you want a drink? Do you want to? I mean, uh, that happens. And maybe something I, I don't trust Slurt at all. Like, I don't. You so know, his story about Benson coming on to him, you're not believing that. You know, I, I just think that he's trying to. I, I think it's unfortunate, as I said before, for the victim where it's like you don't get to tell your side of the story and someone can just say anything they want. Yeah. And, you know. It happens in life and it certainly happens in death. And you don't, you know, you can't even defend yourself. I'm sure it's really hurtful for the family that, yeah. you know, he's being betrayed as this, you know, oh, this guy who, you know, hates Democrats or he's whatever he is, right? And that's probably not even who he was. We don't know. But we right. know that Slurt, we can't trust a thing the guy says. Yeah. And in the end, he was convicted of murder three times. After all of his convictions, Slurt appealed on procedural grounds. So 
just technicalities. He kept having his convictions thrown out. Like in one appeal, he said there was a conversation between his defense attorney and the attorney for the prosecution that happened when he wasn't present and and that wasn't right. And so he got a mistrial because of that. And I can see that, you know, his actions say a lot more truth about who he is than what he's actually saying. He's obviously very cunning to do this, get away with this three times, you know, to go to an attorney and say, hey, I mean, I don't know, maybe we don't know. Maybe the attorney's the one that approached him and said, well, we can get you another trial. But um, a lot of the times it's the the person wants to get out of jail, right? Right, right. Well, he's and probably so, sitting in a cell with nothing better to do. <laughs> right. But he's still thinking about it and he still got what he wanted. I mean, didn't this go before the Washington State Supreme Court? Yeah, it did. But on the, after the third conviction, his final appeal was denied. They finally said, no, this is enough. You committed these this murder. You need to stay in jail. Slurt is now 71 years old, and he is living out his days at the Stafford Creek Correction Center. Now, one of the things that clinched the case against Slurt and killed his claim of self-defense was the testimony of a jailhouse snitch. Deputy Brown says that she's always on the lookout for people who make false statements in order to get something like reducing their jail sentence. But she doesn't think that was the case here. And so snitches are interesting to me because sometimes they are motivated to get themselves out of trouble. But the things that he knew are not things that had been published. So I I gave him some credibility in what he said Slurt had said to him. And I felt like he was fairly credible in his testimony, even though his past criminal behavior would lead somebody to believe that, you know, eh. but, but here's the thing too, is, you know, I've been in law enforcement for 24 years and it's, I think a lot of people think that police officers just totally discredit people if they've ever been arrested and think that they're, you know, a piece of crap. That's not for me. I, I know that people make mistakes and they, they make poor choices. That does not mean they're a bad human being or, you know, that they're never going to be credible again. So that snitch, Douglas Schwenk, was with Slurt in the Lewis County Jail in 2004. And he says that Slurt confessed to killing Benson, quote, in cold blood. Schwenk was on a 90-month sentence, but he only served just over 12 after agreeing to testify against his cellmate. Schwenk wasn't the most solid of witnesses, but unlike the story that Slurt told, Schwenk's story matched up with the evidence that was found at the scene of the crime. As for why Slurt would make a jailhouse confession in the first place, Brown says that she's not really surprised. My personal belief is that people can only carry things, carry secrets for so long. I I think it eats at people as human beings. You know, um, in my criminology classes in college, we learned a lot about this. And then putting that into practice for the last 24 years, I think it's true. I think people can't keep things to themselves, that it eats them alive. And so they they feel like, you know, when you when you have something heavy on your mind and you talk to somebody, it's almost like you, you know, you can exhale and, you know, you've let the weight off your shoulders. And I think that's true for people who commit crimes. I think the smart ones don't tell people, but I think that, you know, when you're sitting in a cell by yourself and you finally have somebody to talk to and mull things over with, Maybe they got close as cellmates. Maybe, you know, he told him something and so he told him something. I don't know. Yeah, I sort of feel like I use this tactic with my kids when I want to have a conversation. I take them on a long drive in the car. So they're stuck with me in this cell and they have nothing else to do. No other options. You may as well talk to mom. Well, does it work? Sometimes. Uh, Yeah. So, (laughs) you know, I think it feels good to talk with your friends about your problems. But staring down a murder sentence it is absolutely stupefying to me that anyone would confide in a cellmate because confessing your crime to a cellmate is basically like currency for them. 
Right. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, look at a, a 90 month sentence reduced to a 12 month sentence. And I'm glad to hear in this particular case that the evidence matched up to the scene of the crime. So he had details that, you know, hopefully I'm sure they vetted it to say, hey, this sounds pretty good. But there are so many times where you hear the I mean, if you're in jail for something, you could make up a story, right, to get yourself a get out of jail free card. Well, so, and you probably have questionable morals. Which makes it difficult to believe a snitch right off the bat, I would think. Yeah, I just think you have to be so careful with snitches because, you know, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it's great to like, okay, we've got what we need to put this person away forever. But on the other hand, it's like, you know, we've also seen law enforcement get that tunnel vision and like this person comes up and they've got maybe one or two similarities. Okay, we've got someone, you know, so it's, it's a careful thing. You know, you really need to be careful with it, I think. So where are you with the whole tattletale thing. I mean, this reminds me of, you know, with kids, don't be a tattletale, right? Snitches get stitches. Um, But but, but when it comes to murder and adults, you know, obviously it's a good thing when they're willing to talk. So (laughs) I just think it's an interesting dichotomy of like when when your children don't tell on anybody, don't be a tattletale. But once you're an adult, maybe it's a good thing. I think that like as far as my kids go, I always kind of go back to the heart. What does your heart tell you to do? Because like if you're just tattling on your brothers just to get attention or just to like, I mean, that's totally different than if you see something go down or somebody's being mistreated or somebody's like, you know, it kind of like puts the onus on them in terms of like building up that muscle. You know, think about what you're doing. To know the right times to to be the the, snitch. The right, yeah, exactly. The right time to do the right thing. Yeah. Now, I wanted to include one more thing in this episode that I really think speaks to everything that's happening in the world today. If the conflict between Benson and Slurt really did start over a political discussion, it wouldn't be a surprise because these days, you know, it's like people have forgotten how to have a civil debate. And Officer Brown says that in this climate, it's something that she takes really personally. I don't know how, as a society, we work towards meaningful, respectful conversations again. I mean, I look at what's going on in the world right now, and it just breaks my heart. Because you, you can't have a disagreement anymore. Everything is lumped in. Like I said, it's all or nothing. And, you know, like what's going on with police officers right now, you know, I, I on calls that I, I've been to this last week, I've had people call me a monster and say horrible things to me. And, you know, I I have nothing to do with what happened in Minneapolis. And those that know me know that um, I don't condone that. Um, I've always treated people with respect and dignity and compassion. So it's hard when you're lumping everybody in, whether that's people of color, whether that's poor people, whether that's rich people, whether that's police officers, you know, I just wish people could be open-minded and think for themselves and stop following all of the things that they see on social media and actually think for themselves and, and be reasonable. Um, don't be hateful. <laughs> That's probably, I guess, the best thing. I think it's really hard for people to think for themselves. You know, I've been doing a lot of, um, you know, as I think everybody is, doing a lot of soul searching, digging deep, listening to people. And, you know, that's what we need to do right now is, is listen. And I think that, you know, hate is such a strong word. It's a word that I've always told my kids not to use. When they were little, you know, they would just look at me, you know, as if it was the gospel and they understood. And then as they, you know, got older, they'd kind of roll their eyes. Come on, mom. You know, because I mean, literally, please don't say you hate. Even if you say I hate cheeseburgers. Right. It's just it's such a powerful word. And um, 
I just I think that the hatred of others, especially when it's based on gender or race, religion, political affiliation, you know, it has such deep roots in our country. And something that I thought was important to talk about, not only in the context of this story, but also what's going on right now with the murder of George Floyd and there's the toxic politics um, that have just really revealed the deep division within our country that's, mm-hmm. that's always been there. So according to a Psychology Today article, in social psychology, there's a concept known as the in-group and the out-group, that people define themselves in terms of these social groupings and are quick to denigrate others who don't fit into those groups. Others who share our particular qualities are the in-group and those who do not are the out-group. And then when individuals feel threatened by perceived outsiders, we instinctively turn toward our in-group as a survival mechanism. So hatred is driven by two key emotions, which is love and aggression. One, love for the in-group and the group that is favored, and two, aggression for the out-group, the group that has been deemed as being different, dangerous, and a threat to the in-group. So I just thought that that was an interesting... um, I'm trying to really kind of look at things, not just get in the echo chamber of social media and uh, having thoughtful conversations with, you know what I mean? Like, I I just want to try to understand and not just like, again, going back into our own sides of like who Mm -hmm. we, you know what I mean? Yeah. The thing that I've, I've found really difficult lately is that you're assumed to be in a certain camp and to share all the ideals of that camp. If I agree with you on A, then I must also agree with you on B and C. Right. And I don't find that that that, fit, that works for me. Yeah. I agree with one side about one issue and I'll gr- agree with the other side about the other issue. And in a way, I feel almost like I'm left out in the cold because I'm not part of any of the in-groups because mm-hmm. I don't agree with with all of the politics that's happening these days, either from the left or the right. Or, you know, it's just it's all so... Uh, extreme. And, and I'm looking for something somewhere in the middle. <laughs> well, you know what? You and I are in the in an in-group because I feel the same way. And that's why I, I've just been trying to focus on listening to other people's voices, you know, black and white. And recently I read something that I wanted to share. A little background first. As a reporter last year, I interviewed former King County Sheriff Sue Rar on a story that had nothing to do with this at all. Uh, But during the interview, I got the impression from her that she was extremely experienced and over 30 years in law enforcement. But we have a lot of experienced law enforcement officers, but she was fair. And especially what we were talking about, she really showed me that because I was, you know, grilling her hard, right, on this other story. So right now, Sue Rar, why I bring her up right now is that she is the executive director of the Washington State Criminal Justice Training Commission. So she oversees the training of all city and county law enforcement and correction officers in the state. She also served on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. And so she recently this week wrote an op-ed in the Seattle Times, and it really just, I think it struck a chord with me, and I wanted to share it. She says, quote, I keep hearing people lament, why does this keep happening? Consider the frequently used metaphor of bad apples. It keeps happening because we only focus on removing the bad apples, which is relatively fast and satisfying compared to the hard work of broad systemic change. But that ignores the underlying problem. Most of the apples we put in the barrel were good. Sometimes something goes awry in the barrel to make them go bad until we are willing 
to invest in creating a healthier barrel, which only partly includes removing apples when they go bad, these tragedies will keep happening. And she goes on to say, if we are serious about creating equity in the criminal justice system, we must look beyond police reform alone. We need to also examine the unnecessarily harmful systems of prosecution, incarceration, and the perverse labyrinth of fines and fees that make rehabilitation nearly impossible. So for me, I believe in balance and fairness, and I don't like the extremes on either side. Mm-hmm. And But it's the work ahead is so difficult. We we have to be united in order to, to get the work done. You I, know? I, yeah, I can agree with you. Well, and that's the hardest part, right, is, is having everyone you know, pointed in the same direction with the same goals and the same plan for how to make it to those goals. There's so many places along the way where we can find disagreement and and it makes it that much harder to to come to a final agreement and resolution and, and to really make change. I think that's really why we haven't been able to make much change over the last several decades. Because of the fighting. Yeah, because we will find one little thing that we don't agree with on the procedure or on, you know, maybe there's 10 different outcomes that we want to achieve. And well, I agree with you on nine of those outcomes, but not 10. So we need to bicker about, about it for a year. Yeah. You know, the, letting the little things, the, the little details get in the way of the bigger picture of what I think everybody can agree on, which is that, you know, we want everyone to be respected, to feel safe, to feel like they're part of the community and appreciated. I don't care what side you're on. I think we can all agree that that's the goal. But how do we get there? That's where we start to have this battle. Yeah. And I think that going back to the case to Slurt, the fact that they looked at it that as a defense in and of itself shows how the divides are so strong. Even back in 2000, you remember back then, that was when the George Bush, uh, Al Gore, you know, election, which was so polarizing, you know, that that people would say, yeah, this, this he would kill somebody over this because of the the camps that people are in, literally, like, yeah. you know what I mean? Well, especially people who, uh, you know, are interested in the militia and those sorts of things de- do tend to be people who enjoy using guns and hunting and that sort of thing. So it, it makes sense that that could have been a conversation that would have come up in this atmosphere. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he was using people's biases to justify getting away with murder. Fortunately, in this case, whether it was because of the Brokeback Mountain thing, whether it was because of the... We don't, we won't know, but he didn't get away with it in either case. So, Carolyn, what are you working on for next week? Kim, we're going to tackle a case that's still in all the headlines, and we're getting out of Washington, going over to Idaho, with the most recent gruesome discovery of the bodies of two missing children. Their mother has been described as the most hated woman in America, cult mom Lori Vallow Daybell, and her children's bodies were found at her husband Chad Daybell's property. All right, that's coming up next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review and a rating on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you happen to be listening. You can probably do us a favor and give us a nice, you know, five-star review and share with your friends. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.